Welcome to the Hunger for Change podcast, the podcast where we challenge health myths and engage with some of the most brilliant and groundbreaking minds in the health field. I'm your host, Niklas Gustafsson, and today I'm thrilled to introduce a guest who's at the forefront of blending sustainable engineering with the transformative power of cold therapy, Dr. Thomas P. Seeger. Dr. Seeger is a unique force in the health and sustainability sector. As an associate professor at Arizona State University, he's not just shaping the future of sustainable engineering, but also pioneering the intriguing field of cold therapy. His innovative approach, termed self-actual engineering, is a testament to his commitment to personal and environmental well-being. He's also the mastermind behind the Morozgo Forge, the coldest cold tub on the market, innovating in wellness technology. His expertise in cold therapy isn't just about the physical benefits, it ties into a larger narrative of self-improvement and resilience. So without further ado, let's dive into this exciting conversation with Dr. Thomas P. Seeger. Hello, Thomas. Thank you so much for being here with me today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invite. Thank you so much. So first of all, Thomas, what does health mean to you? Most people in medicine define health as the absence of disease. And I think that that is not the right way to think about it, as if health were the, uh, the lack of illness. I think health is something more. I think um, health is more positive than that. It is about being able to do the things with your body that your brain can imagine. And, you know, as we age, our brain retains the memory of the things that we could do when we're younger but our bodies don't necessarily retain the capability. So for me, health is about this connection between my imagination and my own physical capabilities. I don't want to lose the things that, uh, you know, some people say, well, they used to be able to do. I want to yeah. retain that vigor and that energy that I had when I was younger. Right. Yeah. And with cold therapy, you can, you can get there, right? And what sparked your interest in cold therapy? So this is a really good question. And um, I think for me, it originates in 2001. When my son was six years old, he was diagnosed with diabetes. And I didn't know. I didn't know what diabetes was. I didn't know the symptoms. I didn't know he was sick. I thought he had the flu. I was giving him orange juice. I feel terrible about it. But that's what my mother did when I was sick during the winter, you know. Mm -hmm. But of course, it just made things worse for him. And my wife called our pediatrician, who was our next door neighbor and our friend, and she was describing his symptoms. She was very worried. And he said, well, you know, there's something going around and it sounds like he's sick. And then my wife said, plus he's peeing all the time. Mm. And our neighbor, John, said, meet me at the emergency room right away. Your son has diabetes and your life is going to change. We had no idea, but I carried him to the emergency room. We're not very far from the hospital. And they admitted him to the pediatric ICU right away. He was in what's called ketoacidosis. That is, mm. because he couldn't metabolize glucose, his body was making so many ketones that it had changed the pH of his blood. Yeah. And I remember John sat me down and he handed me an orange and a syringe. And he said, no one leaves this hospital until you figure out how to use these. So I spent the night drawing up his insulin and injecting it into this piece of fruit while he was on an IV drip that dripped insulin into his bloodstream. And it was like watching him come back alive. Mm. In the morning, he said he was hungry and he hadn't been hungry in a week. It was like a miracle seeing what happened to him. And so because I'm a scientist, I was in grad school at the time, but I'm very data oriented and so we kept journals, all of his insulin injections, all everything he ate, everything that he was doing for exercise so that we could manage his blood sugar based upon the information, you know, his experience. Yeah. Mm. And we began meeting with endocrinologists and nutritionists and dietitians. And Nicholas, it didn't take long for me to discover they were all full of crap. You know, they were saying things like, well, he can eat whatever he wants. You just have to give him enough insulin for it. Yeah, There is not enough insulin in the whole vial to handle Oreo cookies. Oreo cookies are the worst thing that any diabetic could possibly have. And I didn't know until I gathered that data. Well, uh, I have a daughter 
and she's almost three years younger than my son. And I was reading about, you know, going through the journals, Oreo cookies, and this is what it takes for insulin. And then I thought, well, what do they do to my daughter? And I realized that what's not healthy for my son is not healthy for me. It's not healthy for my, it's not healthy for anyone. So I had to cut through a lot of the incredibly bad advice that type one diabetics get and go with my own data, my own experience. This is before continuous glucose monitors and before insulin pumps and that kind of thing. And it was when my distrust of the what Jack Cruz calls the centralized medicine system began. Hmm. Well, you got to go forward, you know, 20 years of learning about ketosis and insulin and metabolism. It sort of culminated for me in my early 50s. I had a whole lab panel done, you know, the male health blood work panel or something like that. What's my cholesterol and all these things that you're supposed to do. And my prostate specific antigen came back elevated. It was 7.8. I said normal is four or less. Now, the prostate-specific antigen test is very unreliable, but it is associated with prostate cancer. And, of course, I'm at an age at this time, uh, 52 or 3, where, you know, a, a man's supposed to have a prostate exam, and he's supposed to be concerned about these things. And so I took a look at this lab report, and it scared the crap out of me because I go online, and it's, you know, talking about the symptoms of prostate cancer, and it says, you know, are you having difficulty urinating? And, Nicholas, I'm so... I don't even know, like, what's normal urination? And now I mm. become so self-conscious. Mm. I didn't want to go to the urologist because I didn't want to enter that whole allopathic medical cascade of overdiagnosis. Mm. I didn't want a biopsy. I didn't want a prostatectomy. I didn't want any of this intervention until I had tried everything within my power without it. First thing I did was talk to other men. And the stories they told me were horrific. Uh, the older men, younger men, uh, biopsies gone bad that led to sepsis infection, prostateectomies that led to men to be uh, incontinent and with erectile dysfunction. And so the catastrophic thinking in my mind, it got even worse. Hmm. And I determined that I was going to take a metabolic approach. The prostate-specific antigen is correlated with inflammation. Ice baths are really good for inflammation. And as luck would have it, a former engineering student of mine and I, we'd invented an ice bath. There was no such thing. And so we wanted to buy one, but we couldn't find it. So we had to create one. And it was sort of a backyard hobby. This was 2018. So I had an ice bath that was my own invention. And I said, I'm going to do this every day. I'm going to go in a ketogenic state. And I'm going to do my ice baths. I would get in there. And it's so cold that when I came out, I would do jumping jacks and push-ups and my steel mace. And then I would go walk to class on campus, about a mile away. And that was just doing this to rewarm. So I did this for about six months. And my PSA kept coming down until it reached 0 0.8. And at that point, I thought, I'm satisfied. Like, wow. this has worked for me. I'm no longer at any sort of elevated risk of prostate yeah. cancer. Okay, okay, great. But Nicholas, I was still doing the male health panel, you know, check all yeah. the boxes. And yeah. um, testosterone came back. And my testosterone went out of range. Now, a lot of the men that I had talked to, to treat their prostate, they went on a testosterone suppression therapy. The idea here is that the prostate is inflamed. Testosterone mm. is anabolic, which means it promotes growth. And their doctors wanted to suppress their testosterone levels so that the testosterone would not promote growth of cancer. Mm. And here I was pushing my PSA down and my testosterone up, which was exactly the opposite of the way that the doctors say it's supposed to work. How, how high was it? What 1180. Was it? So it, it's nanograms per deciliter. And there are a couple of different units, but 1180 nanograms per deciliter was off the charts. And it was yeah. like accompanied by a red, you know, exclamation mark triangle saying out of range, you know, consult yeah, yeah. your doctor. It turns out I had the total testosterone levels of like an oversexed 19 year old. And here I was, you know, a fat 52 year old with a prostate problem. 
So I went to my urologist. I thought he's not going to biopsy me. I'm at 0.8. So mm. I'm in the clear. I'm probably going to get a big pat on the back from my urologist for how clever I am for doing this myself. <laughs> but Nicholas, that didn't happen. He said, well, I want to do another test. And I'm like, oh, you know, am I not out of the woods? I'd never heard of called luteinizing hormone. Turns out he didn't care about my prostate in the least. You know, the prostate is fine. But he looked at my tea and he was about my age. And he must have thought that I was juicing because luteinizing hormone stimulates the gonads to produce testosterone. And if my T levels were that high, but my luteinizing hormone low, he'd know that I was taking roids or something and he would scold me vehemently and, you know, chastise me to go back <laughs> to whatever natural was. Okay. So I had the luteinizing hormone tested. Yeah. 8.9 off the charts. I handed the blood report to my urologist and he said, okay, fine. He never asked me, how did you get your testosterone so high? He never asked me, how did you get your PSA down? He wasn't curious in the least. So, so how long have had you been doing this cold therapy for to, to get the testosterone at that level? It was about six months. Six months I had of been cold therapy. tracking it every four to six weeks saying, how am I doing? How am I doing? How am I doing? Before I had the, courage to actually go see the urologist about it about five times a week or something like that oh how often have been doing the ice baths yeah every day every day all right every day for six months and i still mm. do them every day mm. i was in this morning you know it's yeah. winter here in phoenix and it doesn't get very cold no. but um at 115 degrees fahrenheit so what is that maybe it's over 40 degrees celsius it's easy to get in the ice bath yeah it's exactly. so hot in phoenix that the ice bath yeah. feels like relief i but know it's know, hot in Arizona. you know we're more like 12 degrees c or so in yeah, the morning yeah. time maybe a yeah. little cooler and yeah. um it takes some extra courage to get in there i mean <laughs> every day so um thomas for our followers that are not familiar with cold therapy could you explain what it is There's lots of different forms. I think most people are familiar with what's called cryotherapy. Uh, there's a cryo chamber and it's mm. super cold air. Um, you know, in the US it would be negative 140 Fahrenheit and I've lost track of what that is in Celsius, maybe negative 80 or something like that. It something is like so that. cold yeah. that we don't even mm. have thermometers, you know, that we're no. familiar with. No. It's frigid. But it's air. There are a lot of benefits to that, but there are also mm. some risks. Uh, mm. And risk of frostbite is one. Yeah. So I tried this this frigid air cryotherapy. I was out in San Diego and there was a cryotherapy center. So we looked it up and go in and they say, just don't do more than three minutes. Three minutes is the absolute limit. They give you, uh, you know, earmuffs to wear and mm. mittens. So and there's a timer on the wall. I did three minutes. I did five minutes. I did six minutes. I did eight minutes in there and I was so bored that I, I, I just called it quits. The air, even though it's so cold, it doesn't suck the heat out of you like the mm. water does. Mm. And so what people are calling cold plunging, it's a different form of cryotherapy. Uh, okay. Now, I use an ice bath, which is colder than a cold plunge. But when you get your whole body immersed up to the neck, the yeah. water will transmit the thermal energy so much better than the air because air is a good insulator. It mm. sucks the heat right out of you. And you're, you get two things. You get a greater shock to your system. Your, the thermal receptors in your skin activate mm. your sympathetic nervous system and create the fight or flight response. And you start pulling the heat out in a way that can drop your core temperature. So there's two ways to do cold therapy. The What people call cryo is a cryogenic chamber, the frigid air, and then cold water therapy. Uh, could be cold showers or partial body cold stimulation, but the way I do it is whole body up to the neck. Up to the neck, okay. For how long in the water? I do two to four minutes every day at about two degrees Celsius, one or two degrees C. Okay. Uh, is that in the morning? For me, it's in the morning because, you know, Andrew Huberman says you're supposed to get up early and you're supposed to, you know, get the sunlight in your eyes in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. Who am I to argue with Huberman? So, yeah, I get up before dawn and I usually do a few things like reading or check some communications. And then as the sun is coming up, I'll go out to the my balcony. I have an apartment 
and uh, I'll catch the morning light and I will yeah. do my Morosco ice bath there just three minutes. I have a red light on. I'll get just to augment some of that infrared energy, some of the red light energy that you get in the morning. And then I'll have a brief workout. It's usually the steel mace or I'll do mm. some lunges or some squats right there mm. on my balcony. Mm -hmm. The rule of thumb that I use is two minutes of rewarming for every one minute of ice bath. So if I'm in there for three minutes, I'll do six minutes. And it's really easy to light exercise. Yeah. So you don't combine it with, with a sauna. Well, Arizona, Arizona is kind of a sauna. So, so that's your sauna. <laughs> I really should buy a sauna. Uh, this is Mike Mutzel has done some really good uh, video podcasts on yeah. how beneficial the sauna is. Yeah. But the fact is, if I want heat, I'm just going to park my car in the sun. And it'll <laughs> be right. you know, yeah. up to 50 degrees C before you know it. And I do what's called a car exactly. sauna. Yeah, okay. That's great. I um, I installed a, a um, sauna and a cold bath uh, like one and a half years ago, and I'm totally addicted. I think that's that's so amazing. I do it in the evenings though. So uh, normally after dinner, I go. I have I do like one hour in the sauna, 15 minutes cold bath, six minutes sauna, another 15, 17 minutes cold bath again, six minutes, and I finish with with sauna. So it's all together. It's one hour. And I, I think it's just amazing. The thing is also the sauna is, uh, it's a Finnish sauna, Finnish Swedish sauna, and then it has the the red light, uh, the um, infrared. If you I'm have not, yeah. exclusively an infrared sauna, if you don't have the Finnish type, mm. it doesn't work very well with the no. Morosco because it only goes know. up to like 145 uh, Fahrenheit. So uh, maybe exactly, it's not seat. it's not hot enough. It's a, Exactly right, because your yeah. skin temperature has already been dropped by the ice bath. You get mm. into the sauna and you spend like 45 minutes in there before you start sweating. You really exactly. need closer to like 95C or something. Exactly. So I put it at um, 100 uh, Celsius. Yep. And I combine it with, I combine it with the uh, infrared. And to me, it's like the best thing. I, I love it. I, if When I'm at home, I do it almost every day. So and on average, like five days a week. And I do it in the evenings. And I notice actually with my aura ring that I my sleep improved so much the, the last year. And I think it's thanks to that. I think you're right. Uh, I had an aura ring, you know, this is a couple or three years ago. And mm. I wore it for two weeks. And I got bored with it because every morning I would get a report from my, you know, Aura app and it would say, oh, Dr. Seeger, you slept great. Okay. The next day it'd say, oh, you slept great. And I was sleeping uh, great every night. So I said, what I, the heck? Yeah. You know, why do I need a ring? Uh, I guess I just yeah. gave it to somebody else who wasn't sleeping so well. So it just works for you. Yeah. I, I have four kids uh, and I'm uh, soon going to have five kids. So I don't sleep that well uh, like you do. But <laughs> thank you so um yeah my, my sleep is still uh improvable it could improve quite a lot so um but but i noticed that with the with the cold therapy combined with the sauna i do uh, improve not just my sleep but i mean i feel so great afterwards i i, I feel that it's good for my health the thermal contrast therapy that you're doing is mm. cycling you through vasoconstriction and vasodilation. So vasoconstriction is when the smooth muscles around your blood vessels, they contract and they choke off the circulation to your limbs. This yeah. is to defend your core temperature against the cold. But then you get into the sauna and those smooth muscles relax. So they dilate. And there will be improvements in your circulation as a result of exercising that smooth muscle tissue. That's that's really fascinating. Could could you um, explain how that impacts your physical performance? Because I suppose it's it's like connected, right? There's some new work that Mike Mutzel and I have been talking about. Um, Mike is much more knowledgeable on sauna than I am. But he was reading my work on doing the ice bath before your exercise. And this mm. is coming from Craig Heller at Stanford University, who did a lot of work on what's called per-cooling, introducing cooling in the middle of your workout. Now, I was accidentally, really, discovering pre-cooling. So you do the ice bath, then you do the exercise. 
And what happens is you um, cooling your muscles down before you're going to work them exercise. prolongs mm. your endurance and improves your peak power output. So Heller has done some really careful measurements on this and how to combine cooling and performance and the way it enhances performance. This is where Mike comes in. He's already bought into this ice bath, then exercise. He says, but what if we added the sauna for recovery after the exercise? So we are now triple stacking ice mm. bath, exercise, sauna for recovery. And it's the opposite of what everybody has been doing. Everybody says, really? you know, you do your Ironman and then you get in your ice bath. And I get it. If what you're working on is inflammation and soreness, it, it makes a lot of sense. But yeah. if what you're doing is going for training, anabolic gains, or if you're going into a competition and you want to perform at your best, cooling yourself down beforehand is going to bring your muscles to a higher level of performance. Then Mike comes along and says, and then do the sauna, dilates your blood vessels, improves your circulation, and accelerates your anabolic gains by giving the muscles the nutrients that they need to mm. build greater strength. I think this is so clever. I've gotten one customer who's put it into practice. And he's saying, this is fantastic. I wish you had told me about this three years ago. You know, I've been doing it wrong the whole time. And he's seeing big benefits. Now we need other people to try it for themselves because you don't need a randomized, you know, scientific controlled study to tell you that what's working for you is working for you. The only thing that's important is your N equals one experience. Mm. And when we do get the studies, that's great. That's a source of hypotheses for what you might wanna try next. And this triple stack seems to be the thing that has captured some imaginations. Interesting. So uh, your company, Morosco Forge, uh, what, is, uh, what is the difference from that immersion tank, uh, I mean, if you compare it to other immersion tanks on the market? There was one company when we started back in 2018, coldtub.com. And, you know, they're very literal. If you want a tub and you want it to be cold, you go to coldtub.com. Um, but there was nothing that made ice. You had to like have a separate ice machine like Laird mm. Hamilton does. And then you would pour the ice from the ice machine into the bath. So then we created this ice bath and Ben Greenfield thought it was great. He put us in his book. Now I'm an engineer, I'm a university professor. I don't know anything about marketing or advertising or any of this stuff. But as soon as Ben Greenfield says, hey, I like your product, then people who are into fitness and well-being, they're yeah. gonna start paying attention. And so they did. Since then, a number of imitators have entered the market. They're really competing with cold tub because they don't make ice. Nicholas, it turns out making ice is kind of hard. I mean, you have to know something about thermodynamics. Yeah. Yeah. So the principal difference between our product and the other cold plunge products is that we're colder. It's not the only difference. We're also cleaner and we're also safer. So we're cleaner because the water treatment in a cold spa is different than it is for a hot tub and it's different than it is for a swimming pool. If you don't know your engineering and you don't know how to use your laboratory equipment and you just sort of follow the manufacturer's instructions on the swimming pool equipment and you put it into your cold bath, it doesn't work very well at all. But mm. if you do, if you went to grad school for six years like I did and study water chemistry and you know how to make the measurements, then you can invent your own system, which is what we've done using ozone never chlorine because chlorine is no good for you and that's part of how it's safer so you use ozone ozone Certainly. exclusively yeah and okay. ozone goes great with cold water it doesn't yeah. work in a hot tub because ozone is o3 in our atmosphere is o2 yeah when you apply an electric charge to ozone you can produce o3 but o3 is not stable at warm temperatures so in a hot tub O3 is insufficient to disinfect the water. You have to have chlorine or something else. But in a cold tub, it stabilizes the ozone long mm. enough for it to act as a disinfectant in the water. And so mm. we designed our own system to use ozone and avoid the ill effects of chlorine because we're cold instead of hot. 
Mm. So um, a few weeks ago, I started using uh, a kind of a magnesium salt, Epsom salt. Uh, that that's good. I heard it's. Uh, I haven't noticed any difference so far because I started like two or three weeks ago. But th- I heard that it's really uh, that it's healthy. It is. Uh, let me explain why. Um, there are some people who say that there's no such thing as transdermal absorption of magnesium, and they say that because they'll uh, take a blood sample, measure magnesium. And then they'll put somebody into a float tank or an Epsom salt bath, and then mm. they'll you know dry them off and measure the magnesium in their bloodstream again. And they see no significant difference. So they say there's no transdermal absorption. But what they've forgotten is that only 1% of the total body magnesium is found in the blood. Magnesium is stored in your bones. And so when it enters your blood, it will mm. store it in the bones until you need it. And mm. one of the times when you need it is when you're cold. Magnesium is a critical catalyst for something like 300 metabolic reactions. It's Mm. in your mitochondria and brown fat is rich with mitochondria. So to synthesize new mitochondria, you need magnesium and your body is going to steal it out of your bones if you're not getting enough in your diet or through your skin. So you won't notice, Nicholas, like when you start taking a magnesium supplement, you might feel good about taking the supplement, but you're not going to notice an immediate no. change. Right? If you practice regularly, like I mm. do, and you are not supplementing with magnesium, then your bones are going to get weaker because they're constantly called upon to release magnesium into your bloodstream, to feed it to the mitochondria, to catalyze these metabolic reactions that are keep you warm. And then you will piece some of it out. You must replace the magnesium and doing it transdermally is wonderful because there's a different experiment. You measure someone's pee before their Epsom salt bath. Then you do an Epsom salt bath and then you measure their pee again. And it Mm. doesn't even have to be a cold bath. Sure enough, the magnesium levels in their urine, because it's easily excreted from the body if you take too much, the magnesium levels in the urine go up. And what does that tell you? Of course, there's transdermal absorption of magnesium. So you're doing a good thing putting the Epsom salt in there. There's a reason that the British royalty, you know, used to go to Epsom, England to Mm. bathe in the salt Mm. baths there. That's why we call it Epsom salt. Comes from there. So, um, Thomas, in in your experience, how does, uh, when it comes to stress, how does cold therapy reshape our perception of stress? And what are the implications for health? I'm really glad you asked this um, because the cold presser test is a standardized psychological instrument for measuring your response to stress. So the psychologist will take your non-dominant hand, for me, that's my left hand, and they'll put it in a bowl of ice water, and then they'll measure your pulse and whether your dry hand is perspiring and your breath rate, just to see how well do you put up with stress. Kelly McGonigal, she's a psychologist at Stanford, and she wrote a book called The Upside of Stress. And she emphasized that your attitude towards the stress is more important than the stress itself. If you believe that the stress is good for you, then you're likely to, it will be hormetic stress. You're likely to come out of the stressful experience being more resilient. She talked about the cold presser test. And you could tell that she's never done an ice bath because she was trying to give her reader a sense of how activating the cold presser test is. She said, imagine this. If you Hmm. were to immerse your whole body in water as cold as we use in the cold presser test, you would be dead in two minutes. Well, Nicholas, I've I've been dead a thousand times over, if that's right. I mean, you can tell that, that Kelly McGonigal writing the book on stress has never actually tried the whole body ice bath. She's right that it will activate your fight or flight response. Every cell in your body will be telling your brain, get us out of here. We're going to die. But she's wrong that you're Mm. actually going to die. You're just going to feel like you're dying. It is shortly afterwards when your body's defense mechanisms begin to kick in. So this is the vasoconstriction. This is the cold Mm. thermogenesis. And Mm. this is all to defend your core body temperature. You structure your breathing. 
Maybe use box breathing. And you tell every cell in your body that you're not going anywhere. This is what cold feels like. You tell to your toes and your fingers. And then everything comes down. You improve your vagal tone. Your parasympathetic nervous system takes over. And we've measured this with brain waves. We've used EEG data to show mm. that the brain involuntarily enters a deep meditative state. I can't meditate for crap. But when I go in the ice bath, I get the benefits of meditation, despite the fact that it begins with activation. There's something right. called the dive reflex. It slows yeah. your metabolism. It slows your oxygen consumption rate. Mm. It slows mm. your breathing and your heart. And the, all mammals have the dive reflex. When you get into the cold water, it activates your dive reflex and calms you down. Yeah. Then eventually you get out. And you feel like Superman because you've mm. got dopamine coursing through your system and norepinephrine coursing through your system and all these neurotransmitters. Plus, Nicholas, you just cheated death. And so there's like nothing bad that can happen to you that day. You just did two minutes in your ice bath. It doesn't right. matter if somebody cuts you off in traffic or your boss mm. sends you an email, you know, chastising you for some disagreement that you have with him. You're like, no big deal. That's what makes it so addictive, uh, right? The the dopamine levels, they get so high and you feel, you feel you just feel amazing after that. Huberman says, be sure to earn your dopamine. And I think the ice bath is one way to do it, especially when you're down in, let's say, below seven or eight degrees C. It's pretty mm. cold. Yeah. You're staring at the ice chunks. And what happens to me is I'm like, I could probably skip a day. You know, I don't really have to go in there. Like, I just did it yesterday. I'll double up tomorrow. Because this this voice in my head mm. is creating what Viktor Frankl called anticipatory anxiety. I know it's going to feel terrible when I get in. And yet, I remember, I've never had an ice bath that I regretted. It only lasts like 15 seconds of shock. And then I'm fine. You might have seen uh, Gary Brecka was on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast recently. And Gary, I guess he markets a chiller or something like that. And he talks about cold exposure and it's fine. But Joe is explaining that he is in Morosco and he goes down 33, 34 degrees. And Gary says, you know, I haven't seen a lot of evidence that there's any benefit to going that cold. So why do you do it? And Joe says, because it sucks worse. <laughs> and Brecka says, yes, there is a lot of evidence that going that cold sucks worse. And Joe says, that's the whole point is, you know, is not wanting to do it and yeah. bringing yourself to do it. You're And then and, and then afterwards, you feel great. Correct. Yeah. So there's so, a marketing line for you, Nicholas. Here's how I'm yeah. going to market Morosco Forge. It sucks worse than all the competition <laughs> because we're the coldest. It's, and it doesn't colder. make any sense. Yeah, But it yeah. is true that when you voluntarily put yourself in these uncomfortable situations, you right? prepare yourself for, yeah. for the involuntary comfort. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And embracing that discomfort, that's something that we should do more, more of, right? Because I listened to another podcast, uh, I, I don't remember, maybe with Mike as well, where you were um explaining how everything is so comfortable uh in our lives um not just the warm and heat and but also in general like everything is just comfortable and we need to f to to uh, seek that uh discomfort because that's gonna make us stronger and i i, I truly believe you're i mean you're right if you don't have to go back too far i'm thinking about my grandparents um My mother's parents mm. and my father's mother, she lived until she was 98 years old, but she was born in the 19th century. I'm trying to remember what year, but it was like, mm. you know, 1898. This woman, you know, she had chickens when she was a, a young woman because she didn't live on a farm. She lived in Connecticut, but it was just something that people did. They didn't have, she wasn't born in a hospital. You know, my, my mother's parents, they grew up in Maine. And it's cold in Maine in the wintertime. My parents were born in the Depression. And, you know, they were children then. And they grew up in World War II. If you were going to tell my grandparents who raised kids through the Depression, 
and through the Second World War, that they should be uncomfortable on purpose. Mm. I can almost hear my grandfather telling me, go to hell. I've had enough discomfort in my life. You know, now I'm ready for heated leather seats and an SUV. And frankly, he's earned it. But that's not true of me. You know, I have in, what am I, 57 years old now. I live the most comfortable and privileged existence in all of civilization. People in Arizona, where I live, because it gets so hot in the summertime, they never go outside. It turns out that they're vitamin D deficient, despite the fact that we live in the valley of the sun, because they don't want to go out in the sun and Mm. be too hot. Too hot, yeah. And also, we we just open the fridge, uh, everything is there, We, we, we eat when we want how much we want, it's too comfortable, right? And uh, all that comfort make make us sick. I believe that's true, totally. I want to quote two people that don't usually go together, um, but it's Eleanor Roosevelt and Jerry Rice. It's amazing how much their attitudes are in alignment because Eleanor Roosevelt said, do something that scares you every day. She knew that that was the pathway to personal yeah. growth. Right. Jerry Rice said, I do today what others won't, so I can do tomorrow what others can't. And he was talking about training. The yeah. game is won, not you know on the field, but in the gym before the competition. In his mind, it is the team that is best prepared for the competition, not the team that you know shows up and tries harder during the game. Yeah. <laughs> so I embrace both of these quotes. Right. Uh, yeah. Something that frightens me. So I'm capable of the things that other people that won't get frightened can't do. Mm-hmm. Thomas, I've he- I heard that you compared the impacts of cold exposure to those of nutrition and exercise. Could you go a little deeper into how cold exposure affects the body um, in, in a holistic manner, the body and the brain? It's a great question. Um, Nutrition, exercise, and cold are all related to metabolism. There is no life without metabolism. Right now, people who are doing anti-aging and longevity, they're all looking at your DNA, and I think they're looking in the wrong place. They're going to measure your telomeres. And that's Mm. sort of interesting, but I've looked at the data and there is no correlation between telomere length and expected mortality. So they say, well, we're going to measure your DNA methylation. And again, DNA methylation is not an improvement on chronological age for mentality. They're all looking in the nucleus as if it was the nucleus that contained the key to life. It is not. Life exists in the mitochondria. Because without the mitochondria, there is no such thing as sort of this complex thermodynamic flow of energy that we call life. If you want to slow down your aging, you've got to look at your mitochondrial DNA, not your nucleic DNA. And the problem is that every cell in your body has thousands of copies of mitochondrial DNA. It's very difficult to assess compared to nucleic DNA. So exercise, nutrition, and cold all stimulate the metabolism in ways that maintain mitochondrial health. There is no quicker route to what's called mitobiogenesis, that is the creation of new mitochondria, than cold water therapy. Because as soon as you put yourself in the cold water, your body is saying, "Uh uh-oh, we have a thermodynamic emergency. We have to activate thermogenesis. And what does that? the mitochondria. Your body will respond to the hormetic stress by selecting the best quality copies of mitochondrial DNA available, replicating those in mitobiogenesis so that the next time you get in the cold, your metabolism is prepared. We call this process cold acclimation. It takes about seven to 10 days to recruit new brown fat that is going to keep you warm even when you're exposed to cold. Okay, so now that you're talking about brown fat, could you could you um, explain what, what is that? What is brown fat? It turns out that there are at, at least, it's a slight oversimplification, but there are at least two different types of fat. White fat 
is used to store energy in the body. And it's the kind that nobody wants because they don't want to look at it in the mirror. But brown fat is, especially in babies who have quite a lot of it, it's stored around the base of the neck, between the shoulder blades and the clavicles, around the heart. Brown fat is designed not to store energy, but to convert it to heat. And it is how babies are designed to keep themselves warm. Babies don't shiver with their muscles because That's they don't right. have like the muscle development to do it. So they mm. have to have brown fat. Now, medical doctors used to think that adults just didn't have it, that we all sort of grew out of our brown fat. But then there was a team in Sweden and they're doing these PET scans for cancer patients. The PET scan measures the uptake of a radioactive glucose tracer. Because cancer cells preferentially metabolize glucose, you can inject this tracer, you put somebody in front of the PET scan, and the tracer will show where are the tumors. Well, the instruments that, that you use for PET, they take a lot of electricity, and so they have to be cooled. And so many of the instrument roams were a little cold by hospital standards. And these cancer patients would go in for their PET scan, and the Swedish researchers noticed that in the colder rooms, a consistent signal would come up from around the clavicles. And they'd say, mm. but that's not cancer. You know, this is symmetrical, and it looks healthy. Mm. They say, what mm. could it be? It's brown fat. They published a paper, and this goes back maybe 10 years ago. And at first, the world couldn't believe it. Say, no, 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 grownups don't have brown fat. But then somebody at the Sloan Kettering Institute went through, you know, a thousand PET scans. Hmm. And they said, holy smokes, in the colder instrument rooms, this comes up on a few cases. 95% of adults, 45, at least in the United States and older, have zero detectable brown fat. But there were a few people where they could consistently recognize brown fat coming through on the PET scan. And then Susanna Soberg did a systematic study as part of her dissertation. And she said, I'm going to take these experienced winter swimmers in Denmark. You know, they're always jumping in the fjords or something like this. And she <laughs> yeah. said, I'm going to run them through the PET scan. And sure enough, she did the, the most exhaustive study of brown fat as a consequence of cold water swimming that anybody's done to date. It is now indisputable that yeah. adult humans can retain their brown fat. Mm. And what's even more important is it's not just for thermogenesis. Brown fat is an essential secretory organ. That is to say, it makes hormones in neurotransmitters. Brown fat will make more thyroid hormone than your mm. thyroid will. So if mm. you have no brown fat, there's nothing to modulate your thyroid function. You can come up with hypo or hyper, that is over or underactive thyroid, because it's no longer got brown fat to communicate with. But the other thing that brown fat does is produce neuroprotective factors. So this could be hormones or neurotransmitters that protect the brain. It mm. protects the brain from cold, and that's terrific, but it will also protect the brain from other metabolic injuries. One of them is brain-derived neuroprotective factor. And so there's a, a scientist at University of Southern Florida in Tampa. His name is Joe DeTore. He goes by Dr. Deep Sea. He was a Navy diver for 28 years. And then he got his PhD and it was all in hyperbaric because, you know, when you're a Navy diver, you're very sensitive to oxygen levels and to pressures and things like that. So he did his dissertation on hyperbaric and he opened up a hyperbaric clinic. Then he was in a car accident. And he injured his brain. And he knew he wasn't cognitively functioning well enough to treat his patients. He said, I've got to treat myself. He started hyperbaric. He started infrared. And he called me up and he said, can I get one of those ice baths? Well, yes, you can. Will you explain to me why? He says, because I have a traumatic brain injury and I think the cold is going to help. So mm. I asked around, we have a medical advisory board, and every single one of them said he's right. Cold is very good for the brain. Joe explained it like this. When you immerse yourself up to the neck, vasoconstriction moves the blood out of your limbs, into your core, and into your brain, because your brain is above the water. Mm. It's warm. He says, the increased perfusion in my brain will speed my healing. So... Who am I to question? I didn't do my dissertation in hyperbaric mm -hmm. therapy. Joe says he's getting great results. Makes he sense. He some of his EEG data, 
And mm. it's the before after data. And it's much higher resolution than what I have. And he says the activity in my brain when yeah. I am in the ice bath, it goes through the roof. Mm. Latency, which is um, sort of the speed, a measure of the speed of thought, the higher latency, the slower the thinking. Latency goes way down and connectivity between all the different se sectors in the brain goes way up. So now he's got a couple of master's students and their task hmm. is to try and quantify this, get more data. What's happening in the brain when we go into the cold? Hmm. So uh, Thomas, uh, tell me uh, your insights on how cold therapy might aid in improving mental wellness. Chris Palmer is at Harvard University. He wrote a book called Brain Energy. I don't know if you've seen it, but Chris yeah. is a practicing psychiatrist and an assistant professor at Harvard. And he was really frustrated. His mother was schizophrenic, and it meant that he had a really hard childhood because his mother couldn't really keep it together. He spent some time homeless. And now here he is, you know, at the pinnacle of intellectual society, a faculty member at Harvard, but he couldn't understand why his mother didn't get better and why his patients weren't getting better. And he'd put him on different drugs and he'd try different things and talk therapy. And yet the rates of improvement were so low that Chris wasn't satisfied that he was doing any money any good. He had one patient that was obese and he didn't know how to treat the patient's mental disorders, but he did say, I've heard good things about ketosis. Let's try a ketogenic diet, at least for weight loss, while we're thinking about what we want to do with your brain. So his patient went keto. The patient started losing weight. And Chris noticed that this patient's mental health improved, and it didn't take long. It was a matter of weeks. The patient self-reported fewer symptoms of anxiety. He self-reported uh, elevated mood. Chris said, the only thing we've changed is ketosis. And so he began reading more. And he began reading about the ketogenic diet for treating epilepsy. He began reading about the metabolism of the brain and the fact that ketones are the brain's energy reserves. You will run out of glucose fast because we don't store glucose very well. But the brain, especially some parts of it, prefer ketones for metabolism. And so he wrote this book called Brain Energy about how the brain is the single most intensive metabolic organ in your body. And if your metabolism isn't right, your brain isn't right. No wonder people suffer from mental disorders, from low mood, from major depression, or even from Alzheimer's, which some people call type 3 diabetes, because yeah. mental and cognitive health is so closely associated with metabolism. Now, I've corresponded with Chris, but I've never got him in the ice bath yet. Like, he's all about the nutritional aspect. There are mm. other people who are all about the exercise. And it's the most remarkable thing. Exercise makes you smarter, which is, you know, your brain didn't do push-ups. So how is it that the exercise is improving your cognitive function? It's about the metabolism. And here I bring the third pillar, which is cold exposure. And Ben Bickman at Brigham Young University is really good on this because he is a metabolic specialist. He understands insulin. He understands brown fat. He understands the mitochondria. And there's some really good shots of Ben Bickman, you know, up to his neck in the ice barrel. It makes me want to get Ben and Chris together and say, hey, you know, let's just talk this through. But we haven't done it yet. So you mentioned keto, the keto diet. Um in combining the keto diet with cold therapy, um, I heard you talk of, talk about uh, the uh, treatments of, of cancer. Could you uh, go into that and, and explain how how could that actually improve our traditional uh, cancer uh, treatments? Well, keep in mind that I was afraid I had cancer. I don't know if I did or I didn't. I never had a biopsy or a determination, but in my head, I thought I was going to die. And I'm not proud of it. I'm just saying that that's sometimes the way our fears can take over. So while I was determined to use keto, to take this metabolic approach, keto and ice baths to reducing my prostate inflammation, I got an email from a man named Dean Hall in Oregon. 
he was looking for an ice bath. And we were really hard to find back then. And Dean had an amazing story. He was diagnosed with two forms of cancer, neither one of them treatable. And it was just a question of which one was going to kill him first. One of them was leukemia and the other Mm. was a lymphoma. Mm. Dean wasn't ready to die. He knew that he was going to, we're all going to die. And he knew that these cancers were going to take him. But he said, before I go, I want to do something to inspire other cancer patients because he had lost his wife to brain cancer. And some part of him was angry and sad and full of all these emotions that like became determination. So he talked to his doctor. He said, I want to swim to inspire cancer patients. I'm going to swim the entire length of the Willamette River in Oregon. And the Willamette River is 188 miles long. And his doctor said, Dean, in your state, your immune system is so weak, you couldn't so much as swim a lap in the public pool. It's going to kill you. And Dean said, then I don't have anything left to lose. And he trained. He got into the Willamette River with leukemia. And three weeks later, he came out of the Willamette River without it. He was in almost a constant state of hypothermia. His doctor flew out to visit him on day 14, estimated his body fat at 3%. And 3% is dangerously low. But because he was in a constant state of ketogenesis and always on the edge of hypothermia, through the cold water immersion and the exercise, his metabolism was getting supercharged, producing so many ketones and starving the cancer cells of glucose. Some 80% of tumors preferentially or or, or metabolize glucose. That is, they depend upon glucose. And if you're cold, your brown fat will preferentially clear that glucose from your bloodstream so that the tumor cells can't get it. Dean flew down to San Diego when he was done with his swim to visit the specialist that did his diagnosis. And the specialist drew blood and said, if I hadn't done your initial diagnosis myself, I would swear you were misdiagnosed because there is no trace of leukemia in your body. Now, Nicholas, this sounds great to me. I'm worried about a prostate problem, right? I don't have leukemia. And it kind of gives me courage because compared to Dean, I'm not facing anything serious. But did I really believe Dean's, I mean, It's his experience, and I won't question it, but I thought it was just sort of a miraculous coincidence until I went to the library. And that's where I found Thomas Seafried's work. Thomas Seafried is at Boston College, if I remember correctly, and he's written about the metabolic theory of cancer. Most people think cancer is the result of genetic defects in the nucleus that then persist until the tumor cells proliferate and then it metastasizes and kills you. And Seafree says, no, it's not about the DNA in the nucleus. It is about the mitochondria. When your mitochondria are healthy, they will produce the proteins that you need to repair defects in your nucleus. He's gone as far as to take a cancer cell, extract its mitochondria, replace it with healthy mitochondria, and reverse the cancer in the cell. He says, that's how convinced I am that cancer originates in the mitochondria, not the nucleus. Well, guess what else he did? He administered exogenous, so supplemental ketones to mice and rats in which he had implanted tumor cells. And the ketones inhibit the growth of the tumor in these animal models. That was pretty convincing. Then there was a paper that came out in 2022. This is a team in Sweden again, Seki et al., And I don't know if they were familiar with Seafried's work because they weren't really looking at ketones. They were really concerned about this preferential uptake of glucose into brown fat. So they took their animals and stored them in the cold, four degrees C air. And not all the time because chronic cold exposure is not healthy, but just for periods of the day. And they observed that these mice, which have been bred to die of cancer, they lived longer when they've Mm. been exposed to the cold. The tumors were smaller. It was the same effect that Seafried observed. The cold inhibited the growth of the tumors in the same way that the ketone supplements did. So now we have two mechanisms, and they're both stimulated by cold exposure, ketone production and glucose starvation of cancer cells. Then a third mechanism showed up. This was at the University of Rochester. They wanted to uncode Uh, There's a paradox for it, but it was really the mystery of the bowhead whale. 
bowhead whales are these massive creatures and they live to be like 200 years. There are bowhead whales that were born when Herman Melville, you know, wrote Moby Dick and they're still swimming around in the Arctic Ocean. And the nucleic theory of cancer says that they should be riddled with tumors because Hmm. they're so big. They have so many opportunities to mutate and they live so long that in theory, a bowhead whale should be dead of cancer by the time it's 70, and yet it lives to 200. So these University of Rochester researchers, they wanted to know why. And they hypothesized that it was cold shock proteins. They did some laboratory experiments Mm. confirming that the cold shock proteins are effective at repairing defects in the DNA, which is very similar to what Seafried said, that when the mitochondria are in good shape, they will have the energy to repair defects in the DNA. And they theorize that the bowhead whale is so long-lived because it swims in these cold waters. This is now three mechanisms, Nicholas. Well, I have a customer in New Jersey. She's 63 years old. She weighs 93 pounds and she's got ovarian cancer. She's been through four rounds of chemotherapy and it's not working. So when her doctors recommended a fifth round, she said, I'm not doing it. She found me on Instagram and she said, do you think ice baths will help me? And I said, I can't tell you, you know, I'm not a medical doctor. I can't say, you know, what's going to work for you. I can only say, you know, Seafried says this and Seki says that. And this is what happened to Dean Hall. Mm. She said, okay, she's going to give it a try. And I said, hang on now, before you spend $15,000, you know, on a Morosco or something, you live near the beach, just get in the ocean. She went, she texted me. I spent 15 seconds in the Atlantic Ocean. And I thought, oh my God, this must've been terrible. She said, I felt great. I wanna do the ice bath. Nicholas, Mm. she texts me twice a day. She says, I did two minutes this morning. I did two minutes this evening. I'm at 45 degrees. Is that cold enough? If you tell me to go colder, I will. Now, (laughs) I, I can't tell her to do these things, but metabolically, I know she's fine. 45 degrees is plenty cold for her. I don't know what's going to happen to her. And someday, what if I don't get a text message, you know? Mm. But she tells me, I am not going to die in that hospital. Mm. If it kills me, it's going to be in the ice bath. Mm. So I I don't know what happens. Mm. I know the mechanisms and I know the explanations. And there are no guarantees in this life. Dean Hall was told, there's no treatment for you. There is no cure. When he went into the water, he didn't know if he was coming out alive. And so when you reach that point, when you feel like you have nothing left to lose, you're going to get in the cold. Yeah. Fascinating. I was um, having lunch with my wife uh, today and uh, told told her about our our interview this evening. And... um, uh, and she's so she, she's one week away from giving birth, and uh, she told me, "Why don't you ask Thomas uh, two questions? One, what about uh, pregnant women doing cold therapy? And the other one is uh, breastfeeding." These are two great questions. Um, cold therapy is terrific for pregnant women. And, you know, they always say we should be very cautious about pregnant women. We exclude them from anything strange or experimental. But there's some really good epidemiological data out of China and out of Canada on this. And heat is dangerous for pregnant women. And this is why. Um, I learned this from Ben Bickman. He told me there are two states of physiological insulin resistance, not pathological, but this is sort of a natural and a healthy insulin resistance. He says the first one is puberty because you're growing so fast and the growth hormone interferes with the action of insulin. And so you're naturally insulin resistant. And he says the other one is pregnancy Mm. because the fetus is growing so fast that the mother becomes sort of physiologically, naturally insulin resistant. The problem is gestational diabetes, because when insulin resistance goes too far, it results in elevated blood sugars, not just too much insulin, but blood sugars that go up too high. And this is dangerous for the mother and it's dangerous for the baby. Mm. It can show up in pregnant women in something called preeclampsia. And you'll see it uh, swollen ankles, trouble walking. Mm. And this can be remedied when you put a woman on a reduced carbohydrate, high protein diet, 
good for the metabolism, it's good for the growth, and it can be remedied with cold water therapy. So there are two articles up on our website at moroscoforge.com. And if you, you know, search for ice bath pregnancy, it will be the first or second hit. And those two articles have two case studies. One of them is Josephine Warsek, who has a PhD in microbiology or something like that. And she's also a Wim Hof certified, the only female Wim Hof certified instructor in Germany. Mm. Her sister was pregnant. And of course, she encouraged her sister to do cold water therapy worked out great. And then Josephine became pregnant. Josephine wanted to do her cold water therapy. And so she started reading about it. She and I had a discussion and she's one of the successful case studies. The other one is a former student of mine from Arizona State, an engineer. And she's going to have her first baby. And she was really enjoying cold exposure. And she talked to her OBGYN who said, oh, yes, it's fine. You know, Don't worry about the baby. The baby is very well thermally protected and it'll probably be good for you. So we coached her through a couple of sessions and she texted me. She said, Tom, I slept great. She said, Tom, I can walk. Like th mm -hmm. this is a miracle for me. Mm. The problem with physiological insulin resistance during pregnancy is that our diets are so habitually bad, at least yeah. in the United States, yeah. that many of us are already on the edge of insulin resistance. And very few pregnant women are ever tested for gestational diabetes. It is remarkably underdiagnosed. And so between some level of healthy physiological mm. insulin resistance and gestational diabetes, there's this gray zone in which preeclampsia and eclampsia can show up. And it is a metabolic disorder that can be remedied through pregnant women, forget about the fasting, remedied through high protein, high fat, low carbohydrate, and cold. Yeah. Well, then there's the breastfeeding question. Suppose we finish the birth and everything goes spectacularly well. I want to return to that. Women want to know, you know, can I do cold exposure? Well, breastfeeding, and it's a great question. And the women that I've talked to are having very good experiences with it. But you can also add sauna. It after the birth, sauna hmm. is a terrific thing to bring back into the regimen. And I'm getting this. This is purely anecdotal, but these are like you know midwives in Thailand or something like this hmm. who come to the United States and recommended the sauna, and hmm. it's kind of this ancient remedy to promote lactation. I think they're right. So after the birth. Thermal contrast therapy is yeah. a wonderful thing. Yeah. I've yeah. had women who are breastfeeding go through the ice bath and they report very good results. They're happy to get back to their cold exposure practice and they haven't had any difficulty with milk flow. But I think adding the sauna might mm. help the confidence, help the circulatory system. And so if there are any misgivings after the birth, go back to thermal contrast. Are you um, going to bring your wife into your ice bath? I will. And, you know, by, by intuition, she uh, these nine months, she's been doing uh, the cold baths, but she skipped the sauna. So I think you're totally right, because um, she didn't like the sauna while she was uh, pregnant. Her intuitions um, are outstanding, because yeah. our ancient grandmothers, you know, mm. we're going way back before civilization, they very likely gave birth in the water. It yeah. is the, I mean, you're going through your fifth one. And I don't know if you've used water, but... We did, we did. Uh, actually, three of them are uh, in the water. At what temperature did you keep the water? It was, um, it was not cold. It was, um, I would say it was 37 degrees, uh, which is uh, Fahrenheit 100, is it? Yeah. Yeah, it's warm. It's a little, uh, it's above thermoneutrality. And... Yeah. Um, the midwives don't want to use cold water. It feels so yeah. risky. Yeah. However, the, the rivers and streams and lakes in which our ancient grandmothers gave birth, they were cold. Oh, yeah. Cold has analgesic effects. Cold reduces inflammation. And if yeah. your, your team, if your birth team can tolerate this idea, your wife would be the second person that I've ever heard of to do a cold water birth. And the first one, it turned out great. I'll, I'll tell her that next week we're going to do the, the we'll cold, see, uh, cold burn. See what cold our intuition say about that. <laughs> it doesn't have to be very cold. You know, you could go down to 20 degrees C or yeah, something. Yeah, it's just yeah. plenty cold enough.
We'll see but what she says. Some of the edge off. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And then I want to hear about it. I will. I will tell you. Uh, thank you so much, um, Thomas. Where, where can people find you? I have a lot yeah. of writing up on our website, and it's not organized very well, but you go to moroscoforge.com, you click on the science tab, and you're going to see things about brain and testosterone and things like that. Um, but I got a book that yeah. you know, I've written like 130,000 words worth of articles, and we're now compiling them into a book, and it's so slow going. It's so much more work than I thought it was going to be. But it'll be coming out in 2024. It'll be called yeah. Uncommon Cold. So if you don't want to sort through the articles online, then uh -huh. you can get the print edition. And I'll probably record it on Audible too. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure. It's super interesting. And uh, we'll have to do another um, podcast um, because I have so many more questions to ask you. <laughs> I'd be delighted to do another podcast, yeah. Nicholas. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. And good luck with your book. Thank you so much for listening to the Hunger for Change podcast. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I also wanted to take a moment to talk about Naturally, my brand of healthy food products. At Naturally, we are on a mission to change the world through what we eat. This is why we worked so hard to make products that are delicious and also good for you. They're all gluten-free, have no refined sugars, no sweeteners, and no additives. My personal favorites are the cheesy snacks, chocolates, and cacao hazelnut spread. We also have cookies, granolas, nut bars, nut butters, and protein powders, as well as many cool snacks to be released soon. At the moment, Naturally is only available in Europe. However, we're working to expand to other continents, so stay tuned. If you're in Spain, you can head over to our website, naturally.com, and it will take you to our online store. And if you're in Italy, Portugal, Germany, Poland, France, the Netherlands, or in Sweden, you can find them on Amazon. Search for Naturally. I will leave you all these links in the description anyway, so that you can find them. Thank you so much for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode.